בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, בעזרת השם, we had a uh, amazing holiday, סוכות, שמחת תורה, ראש שנה, יום כיפור, we had all these amazing holidays over this last month, you know, we, uh, we had a show in the middle about, uh, in סוכות, about פרשת שבוע, the last פרשה of the Torah, and we also said that we're going to start a new series. And we're going to try it out. We'll see how, uh, what kind of uh, feedback we get. If it's good feedback, it helps people do tshuva. Then we'll continue. The series is going to be about Pirkei Avot. Pirkei Avot translates in English to ethics of our fathers. And it's, uh, this is part of the Mishnah. The Mishnah ha- uh, was written before... The Gemara was put together by Rabbi, Rabbi Yudah Nasi. And this is one of the critical parts of the Oral Torah that every Jew must learn on a regular basis. This is not one of those books that you read one time like uh, you read uh, you know, a story and that's it. This is, in so many words, Ech Liot Ben Adam. In so many words, how to be a decent human being. But not a decent human being by today's definition, because today's definition is very warped and uh, very different than what the Torah's definition is. So in so many words, this critical part of the Torah, this Pirkei Avot, is something that is supposed to teach us on a regular basis how to behave, how to react to certain things, how to treat certain things, whether it's limut Torah, marriage, relationships, anger, business. This is Musal. If you, uh, if you ever read about Musal in general, whether it's a, uh, the books like, for example, we've talked about in the past, like Mesidat Yesharim, uh, Path of the Just, or different stories by uh, Rabbi Israel uh, Misalant, uh, which was lived about a little less than 200 years ago. There's a lot of Musar that's being taught out there, Baruch Hashem. At least there's a lot of teachings, not uh, necessarily much of it being taught uh, like it used to be. But nonetheless, there's a lot of Musar available. And everything has a source. Now obviously we have the 24 books of the Torah, the five books of Moses, and then 19 books after that. And then the oral Torah is, has different parts, and one critical part is the Mishnah, and this part of the Mishnah is called Pirkei Avot. So Pirkei Avot is ethics of our fathers. Now, Shlomo HaMelech, who obviously preceded the Mishnah, was the smartest man, the wisest man that ever lived. And he said in Mishle, in Proverbs, Right in the beginning of Proverbs, chapter 1. Shema b'ni musar avicha v'al titosh torat imecha. Hear, my child, the discipline of your father and do not forsake the teachings of your mother. So here, Shlomo Melech is telling us that Musar is something that if you want to be close to Hashem, you cannot run away from it. 
If you want to be close to Hashem, one of the most important jobs that you have in this world is to learn how to be a human being, is to learn how to be a good, decent person. But not a decent person, again, by your own definition. You have to look at the instruction set. Now, there's several parts of the Torah. There's the written Torah, there's the oral Torah. And there's obviously many parts of the oral Torah. One of the critical parts is the Mishnah, which from there, they, uh, the roots and the fruits of it is the Gemara. In there, you have exact instructions of what to do. But if we pretend like we already know everything, if we make the Torah secondary, if we make Musar secondary, well, you know what, we want to learn Parashat Shavua, we want to learn interesting things that uh, happened in the past, we want to learn different Sipuret Sadikim, all of that's wonderful. But if you're not going to implement these things in your life, then it's all useless. To learn about who Moshe Rabbeinu is, is very nice. But to learn how to be like Moshe Rabbeinu is the point. That's why Hashem put it in the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu is the, the most important trait that everyone knows Moshe Rabbeinu for, is that he was the humblest man that ever lived. Now, if somebody is a loser, doesn't have anything, doesn't have any money, doesn't have any wisdom, doesn't have any anything to speak of, there's no such thing as humility for a person like that. He has nothing to be proud of. He has nothing. But if someone has everything, and he's humble, and he pretty much acts as if he has nothing, acts as if what he has is not significant because he knows where it's coming from. He knows it's really not his. If he's a faker, where he's like, oh, you know, I, uh, I don't know anything, I don't know anything. Oh, by the way, did you see my book? I wrote all these things in my book. Okay, and then he's saying, I don't know anything, I don't think it's faker. He's not, he's not real. If, uh, if someone is like, uh, yeah, no, I don't know, I don't know that much about business, but you know, I did sign a deal last week for $30 million. That's a faker. That's a faker. Moshe Rabbeinu, when it says that Moshe Rabbeinu was the humblest man that ever lived, it's making that statement, Hashem is signing off on it. Because Moshe Rabbeinu actually had all the reasons in the world to be the most arrogant person that ever lived. The most proud person that ever lived, because he actually had everything. Mm-hmm. He was very, very strong. We read in last week's parasha that when he died at 120 years old, even his eyes didn't, uh, you know, didn't change. He was still a strong, like a 20-year-old person. He was very tall, very strong. He beat Og Melech Bashan, Og the king of Bashan. He was very rich. He made a lot of money, a fortune, off of the uh, little chips of the. Uh, Ten Commandments that broke the little small pieces that Hashem allowed him to become wealthy off of them. On top of that, he's the only man that ever spoke to Hashem face to face. And he spoke to him on a regular basis whenever he wanted. He spoke to the source. From the bushes, no? From the bush and also for 40 years throughout the whole desert. When he was gone. Right, throughout the whole desert. 
all the time that he was in the desert, spoke to Hashem. So Moshe has many things on his resume that no one ever did, and no one ever will do. But yet, Moshe Rabbeinu, when Am Yisrael complains to him, and Aaron, about, you know, they wanted water, Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron says, We're nothing, what are, you, what are we? That you're even complaining to us, complain to the source, complain to Hashem, don't complain to us, who are we, Bechal? Why, just because I, I talk to him, you think he's going to listen to me? Just because I have some money, you think I can buy you something? Just because I'm strong, you think I can do it, I can break something or pick something up? Everything is from the source. Everything is from Hashem. As soon as a person realizes this, then they can start developing a relationship with Hashem. But as long as a person has a confused idea of the relationship they have between them and Hashem, it creates a very big problem. Now, the first Mishnah actually talks about the history, but before that, before we actually go into the Mishnah itself, the Pirkei Avot starts, each chapter actually starts with this Ma'amal, this saying. It's very famous that I'm sure we've, we actually have talked about before. Um, and everyone knows this saying, because you say it on Shabbat, after Tefillah, or at the end of uh, Amidah, כל ישראל יש להם חלק לעולם הבא, שנאמר, ועמך כולם צדיקים, לעולם ירשו ארץ, נצר מתאי, מעשה ידי להתפאר. All of Israel has a share in the world to come. As it is said, your people are all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, a branch of my plantings, my handiwork in which to take pride. And the last part, which is... Um, and, all, and your people are all righteous, they shall inherit the land forever, a branch of my plantings, my handiwork in which uh, to take pride, is actually from uh, I, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 60, verse 21. So here, it's saying that they're using this verse from the Torah, that all of Israel has a share of the world to come. Now why do they teach this? If, you know, so somebody came to the Chafetz Chaim and says, if all of Israel has a share of the world to come, what's the point of doing mitzvot? If I do mitzvot, I have share of the world to come. I don't do mitzvot, I have share of the world to come. What's the point? Let me go to the beach instead of Shil Torah. Let me eat hamburger at McDonald's instead of the kosher burger. What's the point? So the Chafetz Chaim said, Yes, everyone has a share of the world to come. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the ticket is going to be active. Each person has an opportunity to get in. But to earn their keep, they have to do something for it. Nachazal explains what this means, just like they're going to break down every single verse in Pirkei Avot, they also break this one down as well. So the term Israel refers to any individual who has, utterly, uh, who has not utterly divorced himself from the Jewish nation's lofty spiritual destiny. So 
Rabbeinu Hirsch already starts right off the bat. He says, yes, they're talking about all of Israel, but it's all of Israel, meaning everyone except the people that cut themselves off from Israel. Mm-hmm. The Rambam preceded him, of course, is the one that said it first. He said, yes, of course, as long it's talking about all of Israel, as long as they don't qualify for making the sins that are listed in the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 90 to 98, or Gemara Masechet Rosh Hashanah, page 17, where it details the different types of sinners that do not have a share of the world to come. So yes, all of Israel has a share of the world to come. But those people that made those sins, such as Chilul Shabbat, wasting seed b'mezid, Eshet Ish, being in a, with a married woman, and a list of different actions that cut somebody off from the Jewish people, as long as they don't have that, yes, they're part of the Jewish nation. Maybe some of them are more righteous than the others, but still they're going to have a share. But if they made one of those sins, if they're making that sin, if they're, if they're going against Chazal on a regular basis, so for example, if someone makes a sin, like let's say a Chazan, Chazan has to be for somebody very special. You can't just have anybody as a Chazan. Now, if the Chazan wants to look good for the Keilah, he wants to shave, wants to have a clean face, and he decides to shave with a razor, which is 100% against the law, it's against Chazal. Now, if he does it once, that's a huge sin. It's like eating pig six times. Six different sins. Anybody, anybody wants to uh, learn some more about the uh, shaving and things like that, there's a book over there in Hebrew talks about where you're supposed to shave and so on. Also with haircuts and so on, where you're supposed to, you know, you can't just uh, shave your head with a zero. If you want to shave your head, has to, you always have to leave a little bit of hair, especially over here. So nonetheless, if he makes one sin, okay, fine, it's one sin. It's not the same he does tshuva. But if he's the type of person that is making that sin on a regular basis, he wants to look like a movie star at all times, he wants his face to be like a baby, he wants to shave with a razor, then he is going against Divrei Chazal on a regular basis. When you go against Divrei Chazal on a regular basis, where it's not a one-time thing, this is one of the things that is in Masechet Sanhedrin. It says you are no longer part of Am Yisrael. Meaning, he's not only not allowed to be a Chazan. He's not allowed to be in the Minyan Bechlal. He's not counted as part of the Minyan. When he says Kaddish, you're not allowed to say Amen. When someone that's a violator of Shabbat says Kaddish, you can't say Amen. It's Bechad of It's nothing. Can't say amen. That's why every time, most shuls that have a lot of mechalele Shabbat, usually there's one guy that keeps Shabbat that also says Kaddish. So you say amen to him. You don't say amen to the guy that's mechalele Shabbat. Mm-hmm. So, in this Gemara, anyone that wants to look at all the details of different types of sinners, you could look at, again, like I said, Masechet Sanhedrin, page 90, or, or Rosh Hashanah, page 17. There's another list of people that are cutting themselves from the nation and unfortunately today 
people are making these sins on a regular basis without even knowledge. And some of them are even people that are supposed to know, like people that are wearing black and white and have beards and call themselves religious, but they make stupid sins because of uh, they haven't read Pirkei Avot. They have, you know, the basic rule of Pirkei Avot, you start Pirkei Avot, first chapter, you learn that Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah from, from Al Sinai. Okay, so why don't it say Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah from God? Why don't it say that? Why don't it say you received it from Sinai? Because to show you, first of all, Moshe, the only reason he received the Torah was because he was humble. The only reason why Hashem gave the Torah on Mount Sinai is because Mount Sinai was the humblest of all the mountains. In order for you to receive the greatest thing that ever was created, you have to look at yourself and view yourself as absolutely nothing. Meaning, the greater the Jew, bigger the Jew, that means the smaller he thinks of himself. This is not to say, again, humility is sometimes confused where people think that just because you're, you know, somebody that's humble is constantly uh, abusing themselves or is someone that has self-confidence issues. No, this is not what we mean when we say humble. Humble doesn't mean that you think of yourself as a loser. No, Moshe Rabbeinu absolutely did not think of himself as a loser. He was a winner in all shapes and forms, and he knew it. He knew exactly where he stood next to all people. But he wasn't comparing himself against the homeless guy down the street, and he wasn't comparing himself against uh, the people. He was comparing himself against the source. He knew that by himself he had nothing. He was nothing without the source. Without Hashem Barach, he had absolutely nothing. So when someone starts looking at things from that perspective, then they realize that they are nothing. So, if a Jew wants to be great, he has to start viewing things that way. Now, when someone doesn't view things that way, they can learn all the Torah they want. They can learn Torah from here until next year. Non-stop Torah, but they don't have the slightest amount of humility. Their Torah is considered Torah Hashem, meaning disgusting to Hashem. The Torah, the only reason why Hashem created the world is for the Torah. He didn't create it for the Jews, by the way. He created it for the Torah. Torah was created before the Jews. Hashem looked at the Torah and created the world. Meaning Hashem looked at the Torah as the blueprint. And from the blueprint, He created the world. So He saw, okay, so there's supposed to be mitzvah for shloch haken, to take the uh, eggs or the baby chicks from the nest. After you shoo away the mom. There's one mitzvah that's hard for people to understand. We did a whole shchidush uh, about it, about 20 minutes, explaining it, uh, maybe a month ago or so, before the holidays. And there's a mitzvah. They have to do it. So Hashem says, okay, so I'm going to make, create birds, that they make nests, and they have their chicks in there. There's a mitzvah of kosher food. So I'm going to make certain animals that can be kosher, and certain animals that can't be kosher. There's a mitzvah of tefillin. So I'm going to make tefillin. I'm going to give man the wisdom to create tefillin. So Hashem looked at the Torah as a blueprint and then created the world. Not the opposite. Not created the world and then wrote the Torah. The Torah was written 974 generations before the world. 
black fire on white fire. This is the reason why you see white pages, but always have the black ink. You don't see the Torah, Sefer Torah, with uh, purple ink. Or with uh, red ink. You see with black ink. Why? Because it represents also the way the Torah was originally written was black fire on white fire. So when it says here, Kol Yisrael yesh lehem chelek l'olam haba, first it's telling you, make sure you're not one of these people that cut yourself out of the nation by making one of these big sins on a regular basis. Listen, somebody makes a sin one time. Somebody makes a chilul Shabbat, chas v'shalom. Somebody shaves with a razor. Somebody goes with a non-Jew. Somebody, uh, you know, eats not kosher. Somebody makes all of these big sins. Okay, you made a sin, you do tshuva, Bezat Hashem. Hashem created tshuva also. He knew he had to create tshuva before he created the world. But, if you're doing it on a regular basis, doesn't matter, even if it's the smallest sin, you're on a regular basis going to McDonald's. Once a week, you go to McDonald's. Now, eating non-kosher, eating non-kosher is not karet. It's not, uh, you don't get cut off from the nation for, for eating non-kosher. It's not good. You're, it's going to be very, very difficult, virtually impossible for you to learn Torah and actually understand what's going on. But it's not karet. But if you're doing it on a regular basis, you're violating the Torah on a regular basis where it's become part of your life, where you're accepting this, this is okay, this cuts you off from the nation. So, yes, you are allowed to make sins. You're, in essence, expected to make sins. It says in the, uh, in the Torah, there's no such thing as a righteous person who doesn't sin. Shlomo Melech tells us. But, don't ever think it's okay. Don't ever say, oh, you know, I made a sin. I uh, went with a uh, non-Jewish man only tonight. It's okay. It's only tonight. And tomorrow it's the same thing. And next week is the same thing. If you say it's okay once, why is it not okay again? This is the reason why the shita, the strategy that unfortunately many rabbis use in today's world of telling people that it's okay to drive to shul in the beginning until you eventually do tshuva, this is why it doesn't work, by the way. Because... If you look at it from a secular mindset, if you look at it from someone who wasn't born in a religious family, now, someone like that is going to think about pure human logic. He's not going to look at it with Torah logic. He's going to look at it with pure human logic. So human logic says, if it's okay for me to drive to shul today, you're saying it's okay for me to drive to shul today, on Shabbat. Saying it's okay, just so, just make sure to come to shul, even if you have to drive. You're saying it's okay. Why isn't it okay tomorrow? Why isn't it okay a year from now? Why isn't it okay five years from now? Now, if the rabbi answers, no, no, no. In the beginning, I told you it's okay to drive on Shabbat because I knew that if you don't drive on Shabbat, you're not going to come. But now, you've already been coming for a year. It's time for you to, to go up. So the secular mindset says, why? Why do I need to go up? No, you've already learned mitzvot. You've already learned some Torah. You, you prayed with us. 
So then the secular mindset is going to say, yeah, but I'm not ready to go up. You may be ready for me to go up a level, but I'm not ready to go up a level. I'm ready to stay exactly where I am. I still feel like I'm, I'm new. I'm new. I'm only a year old. So what's the rabbi going to say? Okay, so he drives for another year. So now after two years of driving to shul, the rabbi asks, okay, no, so you're going to stop driving? Because why should I stop driving? It was okay for the first year. Yes, it was okay for the first year. You said it was okay for the first year. And technically you agreed with me that it was okay for two years. You can't say no, you agreed that it was okay for two years. If it was okay for the first year, it was okay for two years. So if it's okay for two years, then it's going to be okay for another two years. I'll talk to you in two years from now. And so the story continues. And the whole human logic beats the Torah here. Why? Because... You're not using the Torah from day one. You're saying it's okay to sin. It's never okay to sin. It's never okay to drive to shul. You're going to drive to shul. It's your problem. I'm still not going to tell you it's okay. You want to drive to shul? Drive to shul. You want to eat pork? Eat pork. Do whatever you want. It's your life. It's your destiny. But I can never give you a sign off and say, by the way, it's okay for you to drive to shul on Shabbat. Kid, just come to shul. There's no such thing. There's no mitzvah. In the Ten Commandments that's listed in the Ten Commandments, you must go to shul. There's no such thing. Ten Commandments does not include going to shul. It does include keep Shabbat though. So when someone from the secular mindset looks at the religion and he, and he sees that a, someone that's supposed to know giving the okay to sin, then immediately that person looks at the Torah as a complete joke. As something that's variable, something that can change. It's no longer divine. It's no longer from God, because if it was from God, it's never going to be okay to sin. If it was from God, it can never change. It was from God, there's no exceptions. Unless that person gives the Rav. Right, so if the, if the guy gives the Rav some money, and the Rabbi sells, sells Hashem, Hashem out for money, then Hashem Rechem, then both of them will have a nice place in Gainom. But the key is to understand that you cannot make exceptions. can't make exceptions. You have to tell people, listen, I would love for you to come to shul. Stay home. Okay, but the only way that I come to shul is if I drive. What do you, what's the proper answer? Somebody tells you, listen, the only way I come to shul is drive. Now, if you know that that person has a closer shul, you tell them, listen, go to a closer shul. Don't come to my shul. Go somewhere else. If not, tell them, listen, come stay at my house. Exactly. Come stay at my house. We'll walk to shul together. Option three, don't come. Pray at home. Yeah, but I don't know how to pray. Find a way to come. Don't drive. Yeah, but the only way I can do it is drive. Listen, I'm telling you, you should come to shul so I can teach you. But it's never going to be okay for you to drive. You have, at some point or another, you have to have some type of emunah that Hashem runs the world. If the rabbi is saying, no, no, listen, we're just trying to get him in and tell him it's okay for now, but later we're going to change him, how many of those things, cases actually worked? How many of those people that you told them it's okay to drive to Shul on Shabbat, it's actually worked and they stopped driving on Shabbat? Very few. I'm sure some exist. I'm going to give them the kaf schut, benefit of the doubt that they exist, but it's definitely not many. So, 
here the Mishnah starts with, first off, make sure you realize, you cannot cut yourself out of the nation if you want to be part of this share of the world to come. That's number one. Number two, that it's teaching us here, is the Gemara says, there are three things that will get you to this Olam Abba. This Olam Abba that everybody's waiting for. I'm sorry, there's a... Um, several things you need to do in order to get to Olam Abba, which obviously you have to look at this first Mishnah. But before we even get to that point of actually getting to this Olam Abba, we have to realize why is it being told to us in the beginning, before the Mishnah even starts. Tell us, listen, you can have Allah Abba, you can have Allah Abba. It's to give us hope. It's to give us hope, give us encouragement. Hey, listen, even you get can get a share of the world to come. Just don't screw up. Don't get yourself cut off. That's number one. That's rule number one. Rule number two. The Gemara says, there are three things that you can get, but not without Mesirut Nefesh. Not without sacrifice, self-sacrifice. Number one, learning Torah. You want to be a Talmud Chacham? You want to know a lot of Torah? It requires self-sacrifice. You want to learn Torah while you're eating cookies and chips and, and, and a little cup of tea? It's great. Enjoy. You could learn Torah as much as you want with tea and cookies and with your legs up on the couch, you know, from 5 p.m. till 8 p.m. right before your show starts. You can learn Torah, no problem. But you're not going to be a Talmud Chacham. You'll know Torah. You'll know the basics. You'll know how to, you know, you'll know that Moshe Rabbeinu existed. You know Mount Sinai. You may even know a few halachot. You'll know some Gemara. Yeah, you'll know. You'll know some things. No questions asked. But to be a Talmud Chacham, never going to happen. Why? Because in order for you to become a Talmud Chacham, you have to understand the value of Torah. In order for you to understand the value, once you understand the value of Torah, you're not going to be able to leave it. Meaning that you're going to eliminate the material world. The more you learn Torah, the more you eliminate the material world. The more you disconnect from the wafers and the chips and the Gatorades and the shows on TV and everything else. There's this very famous story about Rav Slovacic, one of the Doledo, and uh, they wanted, they were looking to elect someone to uh, head the yeshiva. Head the yeshiva, and this is, you know, big tafkid, a big, uh, very, very important. But someone that's going to, not just the yeshiva, not uh, dealing with the students, but someone that's going to protect the Torah against all of the wicked people that are trying to modernize it all of the wicked people that uh, call themselves enlightened secularists. Secularists. Meaning the people that feel like their science and their medicine and their uh, philosophy that they learned in college is more significant than Torah. So we obviously need to fight this. We need to fight these people. We need to make sure that we protect the Torah from everyone and anyone 
and they picked someone, they elected someone to run it, who happens to be one of the people that works for the rabbi. They figure this is an easy shoo-in. This is guys, he works for the rabbi. He's a businessman. Gives some donations. Nice guy. Keeps Torah and mitzvot. Why not? The rabbi, as soon as he heard about this, he vetoes the vote. He says, no, he can't be. He cannot be the uh, number one guy. Doesn't make any sense. So everybody's shocked. This is a uh, definitely a uh, shock to everyone. They figured if, if anyone was going to get this, uh, this job, this is the guy. So the rabbi says, listen, let me, let me explain this to you. In the Gemara Masechet Bavakama, page 62, it says that if you give someone something to keep, then you have to tell them what it's worth, so they know what they're keeping. So for example, if you give somebody a pot of gold, nice, big sack of gold, and you don't want them to know that there's gold in there, you'd say this, and there's silver in there. Silver. And it gets lost, or someone steals it. And you come back to me and say, listen, I paid you to watch this gold. You have to pay me back. There's all different types of laws as far as who has to pay you back, who doesn't have to pay you back based on what kind of deal you had, whether they did it for free, or whether you paid them. But nonetheless, let's not talk about that part. Let's just talk about, let's say he has to pay you back. He says to you, um... Yes, uh, I'll pay you back, but I'll pay you back for silver, not for gold. You told me I'm holding silver. You didn't tell me I'm holding gold. Right. That's his fault. Right? Mm-hmm. Why am I going to pay for gold if you told me it's silver? If I knew it was gold, sure. I would have a different, I would have something else. I would, uh, I may, maybe I'm not going to watch gold. Maybe it's too expensive for me. Maybe it's a, uh, maybe I would bring a gun. It would be a completely different deal. Should have been honest with him. Right, should have been honest with him. So Rabbi says, Rav Slavichik says, you can't have somebody assume responsibility for something if he doesn't know its true value. Because to protect our Torah, we need somebody that knows its true value. Now even though my dear friend Is a wonderful Jew. Keeps mitzvot. He learns. He's a good guy. But his evaluation of a Torah, because he spends a lot of his time in the business world, in the regular world. He's not, uh, Torah is not his life. Mm-hmm. It's part of his life. So he values a Torah like silver. Like silver, which is still good. But he doesn't value it like gold. If he valued it like gold, he would leave everything. And just learn Torah. So the only way that we can have somebody to value the Torah like gold is if someone knows it. What is it? Tamid Chacham. Someone that dedicates 100% of their life to Torah is the only one that could know that it's truly gold. It's the only one that's showing that it's gold. And that's the only one that could actually be the one that's charged with this tafkid, 
with this mission to protect it. Right. So we have ourselves. The Mishnah tells us, or the Ma'amal that says, okay, first and foremost, don't lose out your ticket by making these mistakes. Second part, realize that it's not going to come easy. The three things that require Masilut Nefesh is Torah, Olam Abba, and Israel. Eretz Yisrael. It's three things. Meaning, if you want to live in Israel comfortably, it requires Masilut Nefesh, requires self-sacrifice. You want to live in Israel, period, requires self-sacrifice. Now, there's plenty of people that live in Israel, and it doesn't look like they're sacrificing anything. They were born there, and they live there. It doesn't necessarily look like they're sacrificing anything, but this is not the type of living in Israel that we're talking about. We're talking about living in Israel with a potential of having the rest of the reward of Olam Abba, the eternal reward, not just living in a uh, villa on the uh, you know, 35th floor of some new building they built in Netanya. In regards to Torah, you want to learn Torah to a point where you just understand basics, fine, you could do it, drink your coffee, watch Jeopardy while you learn, do what you got to do. But you want to become Tamid Chacham, you got to start becoming used to losing sleep, becoming used to having less pleasure from this world, becoming used to struggling through your learning on a regular basis and accepting it with a smile. You want a share of the world to come, which is the whole thing that we started here. You want this chelik la'olam This ma'amal is talking about, then your whole life has to be one big mesirut nefesh. Every day, all day, all the time, mesirut nefesh, self-sacrifice has to become a regular part of your life. Now many people... Here, Baruch Hashem, some of the stories we tell in Ashiwim about people that Mamash are seeing miracles. Whether it's my own personal miracles that we've seen and continue to see, or some of the students that we have, whether it's Emmanuel from Bulgaria, or different people from New York, and different Baruch Hashem, many, many people are experiencing a lot of miracles. Vimesh from India, Baruch Hashem. A lot of people are experiencing different miracles, and people are. Uh, I'm asking, how come I don't get any miracles? How come I don't get any miracles? Now, when I said, listen, you have to, one of the ways to get yourself a miracle is doing Kiruv. But I didn't mean do Kiruv, like, on the side, once a week for two minutes. Like, you know, say like to a video. I meant do Mesirut Nefesh, meaning self-sacrifice. That extra time you wanted to spend watching sports, that's when you do Kiruv. That extra time you wanted to, I don't know, do something fun in your life, that's when you do Kiruv. That extra time that you were going to live in this world, that's when you connect to the Torah, you learn Torah, you do all those things that you're supposed to do that is beyond what your calling is. Now, Mesirut Nefesh is something that people have a hard time understanding what's, what's really required. So I'll give you guys a little bit of an understanding. A little less than 200 years ago, there's Rabbi Israel from Salant. 
was started what was called at the time the Musar movement, where he noticed that uh, the teachings of Torah have changed drastically over the couple hundred years before him, where before that there used to be only two types of shulim, Ganeden, Genom. You do this, you go to Ganeden. You do this, you go to Genom. That's it. No, 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 like doubting system. Oh no, no one has Genom. Everybody's righteous. Everybody's tzaddikim. There's no such thing. You do this, you go to Ganeden. You do this, you go to Genom. That's it. Which, by the way, Pirkei we'll get to it. Bezalot Hashem also talks about Genom. So it's not some mythical thing that we never heard of. It's in the Mishnah. It's in the Gemara. It's in the Shulchan Aruch. It's in it's everywhere. So anyone that says Genom doesn't exist or it's some, uh, I don't know, washing machine that uh, just cleans you up for a year and it's okay, it's not such a big deal, has no idea, has never read one book of Torah or is just lying, I'm not really sure. But either way, it's very much a very big part, significant part of the Torah that it exists. There's, pun- there's reward and there's punishment. And the punishment is not just here. So... He saw that a lot of people were focusing on the Gemarot and the Mishnayot and the Torah that is mentally stimulating to figure out different halachot, figure out why this happened and why that happened and all of these different things. To such an extent that they stopped working on themselves. They stopped working on their midot. They stopped working on Pirkei Avot and on Musar and actually becoming better human beings. They just became dictionaries or encyclopedia books. And he learned this from his rabbi when he was 13 years old. When he was 13 years old, his rabbi told him, listen, learn Musar every day. Doesn't matter what happens, learn Musar every day. He didn't say learn Gemara every day. He didn't say learn Zohar every day. He didn't say learn a, uh, you know, Chumash every day. Of course you have to learn all those other things. But Musar, don't, don't have a day complete without learning Musar every day. And as the story goes, Rabbi Salim Salant, when he was only 13 years old, really took this to heart. You know, when you say something to a a young kid that's powerful, they usually remember it for the rest of their life. It's much easier to mold a kid, to mold a child, than someone that's in their 40s or 50s. I can tell you guys something, five minutes later you forget about it. But I could tell him something over there, a little new, 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 new kid over there, I could tell him something, I'll remember it for the rest of his life. So he has an opportunity to be a big tzaddik now because he'll remember what I say. You guys, I don't know, I'm not so sure. You guys have to, have to repeat it a few times. <laughs> Me too. Mean, so we have to record, we have to put it on YouTube so we can watch the show. So anyway, um, so Abim Salami Salant took this to heart and he said, okay, I'm going to have to sacrifice my time, my life, my everything, every single day no matter what, family, kids, work, business, doesn't matter what's going on, every day I'm going to learn Musal. Every day I'm going to learn Pirkei Avot and all the different things to make myself a better human being. And then teach it. And he 
אז לפרקי אבות זה הפוך בה והפוך בה דקולה בה. And eventually got to a point where not only was he teaching it, but according to his students and many that lived there in that time, he got to Ruach HaKodesh. He got to a point where he had Ruach HaKodesh. Meaning he had an ability a, that's not very uh, uh, common anymore, where a certain level of communication with Hashem Itbarach, that's a level below prophecy. This is not 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. This is 150 years ago. And Rabbi Yisrael from Salat, to give you an idea of how he thought, he had to become one with the Torah, to think like this. So I'll give you an example. One time they were on a train. He's on a train with some of his students. Train stops, and he has his hand hanging out of the window. And the glove, you know, it was really, really cold. But the glove on his hand fell out, fell off of his hand, and fell on the uh, tracks. So he got up to go get it. But then he heard uh, from the, uh, the guy from the train saying, Oh, we're taking off, we're, we're leaving right now. So as an instinct, he took the other glove and threw it out the window. To the rest of us, we have no idea why he just did this, right? Same thing like mm-hmm. his students. They have no idea why he just did this. You had, one, you had two gloves. Now you have one glove. At least keep one glove. Someone will find one glove. So we'll find this is Rabbi Yisrael from Salat. Rabbi Yisrael from Salat, the students asked him, Why did you throw the second? Okay, you lost one glove, but why did you throw the second one? He says, well, of course, I enjoyed the two gloves for a long time. But now I lost it. I don't have two gloves. And of course, I'm not going to enjoy one glove. So I figured that at least whoever's going to find the one glove, he's going to find both of them, he's going to be able to enjoy it like I enjoyed it all these years that I had the two gloves. But this was an instinct. This is not like he thought about it, assessed it, 15 minutes later he came back, okay, let me put the glove over there. This is an instinct because the train was leaving. He didn't have time to think about it. This means that he had to become a mash one with the Torah. It became his instinct to think about the world around him. So this is the type of Masirut Nefesh that was required from him to do on a regular basis to get to where he was. The story continues. I'll show you how the Torah that we got from Moshe, how it travels all the way to today. Another story about Rabbi Yisrael from Salant is another time he's on a train and he sees this uh, businessman, Jewish businessman, And they start talking. A Jewish businessman owns a timber company. He's very, very wealthy. Owns a timber company. And he tells him, listen, I'm going to do this deal and that deal. And, and he keeps asking. And Rabbi Yisrael says, what are you going to do with it? He goes, oh, I'm going to make money. And what are you going to do with that? So I could buy another business. And so on and so forth. Rabbi says to him, Chavalda, you're wasting your life. Says, what do you mean? You already have enough money to learn Torah the rest of your life and use all this money to open yeshivas. 
and you're just going there to go make more and more and more of what you can't keep anyway. You can't take this tolaba, this money, this timber. The guy took it to heart. Got off the next stop, went on the train the opposite way back home, got home, sold all of his assets, all of his business, and started opening yeshivas everywhere. Opened over 30 yeshivas. His name was a Sabamino Vardok. And he became himself a huge Tamit Chacham. Huge Tamit Chacham, huge. He realized what Rabbi Israel was saying is real. He's not uh, sugarcoating anything. He knows the purpose of the way. He know he was already religious. He kept some mitzvot. He wasn't like a kofero uh, or anything. He was already new. And you know, listen, I don't need any more. What am I going to do all this money? Let me go. I already have this world. Let me actually start preparing for the next world. And he went from place to place and started opening yeshivas and filling them up with tamidim chachamim and became a tamid chacham himself. Mesirut nefesh for the rest of his life, but in a different direction. Not go work. Okay, so you could go work and make more money and just give money for yeshivas. But what Torah is he going to show up with? The one that he learns an hour a day. You're going to pay for the secret for everyone else to find out the secret except you. So, Mesirut nefesh of completely disconnecting himself from everything he knew. It sounds easy. Oh, just sell everything. You're a millionaire already. Sell everything and go learn Torah. It sounds easy. But it's almost impossible. Lama, because until that point, all he knows is business. That's what he knows. You know that there's a material world. You know that there's a deal, the deal, and another deal, and another deal, and you keep doing deals to give yourself some type of a measuring stick of how you're progressing in life. That's why people like Warren Buffett and Kirk Akorian and Carl uh, Icahn and all these moguls of, of business, that's why they keep doing business at 80 and 90 years old. They don't need the money. But it's a measuring stick. That I'm progressing, that I'm moving forward, that I still have it. I still got the touch. I can still analyze a business and tell you what it's worth. And buy it for a discount and sell it for a premium. It's a measuring stick of where you stand. It's a false measuring stick because you could be the best businessman in the world but the worst person on earth. It's a false sense of reality. But for them, it's their only reality. In the business world, it's your only reality. When I was in the business world, I could tell you that the only conversation you were allowed to have with me was about business. I don't care about sports. I don't care what girlfriend you have. I don't care what you did this weekend. It didn't matter to me. If you had a problem, I'd rather just ask you how much it cost you so I can give you the money you can leave me alone. That's, uh, again, this is reality. What do you think? It's, and it's not, a, well, I wasn't Warren Buffett or anything. But when you're in your own world and you're trying to be a, a, a change maker, somebody that's really, really successful, you don't have time for like small talk. 
I don't care what you do this weekend. Tell somebody else. It doesn't affect my life. Like, how am I going to make money off of this? Or people like to talk about sports, like to talk about the Yankees or the Mets or the Dodgers or I don't know, whatever other teams there are in baseball. And this guy got $20 million and that guy got $20 million. And I would always ask him, why do you guys talk about it? He's like, wow, look, the guy made $100 million. Isn't that interesting? I'm like, why? Is he paying my bills? Is he going to send any of that money to my company? Why do I care how much money he has? Does he care how much money I have? Like, what, what difference does it make? It's the lowest form of conversation. It's when you really have absolutely no life whatsoever, nothing to talk about. So you talk about other people's life. And how much money they have. Like you want to try to live vicariously through their life. That really shows that you have a very horrible life. You have nothing in your life. So when you're in that world, it's the only world that exists. But you have to continue making deals, continue taking risks... Continue doing something because it's your lifeline. If you stop, okay, you go on vacation for a week, it's fun. But to go on vacation for six months or a year is a nightmare. Yes, you can afford it, but no one does it. Because how is the world going to know that I'm still progressing? How am I going to know that I'm still progressing if I don't do any deals? So for the Sabamino Vardok, to go from being an ultimate businessman to leaving business and going 100% full force Torah opening yeshivas is the ultimate Mesirut Nefesh. It's the Akedat Yitzchak. Because he's leaving everything he knows to a world that's pretty much foreign to him. Yes, he knows Torah exists. What was this, 150 years ago? A little less than 150 years ago. 100 years ago now. So this was a major change, switch, a mental switch to say, okay, business is no longer important. Only thing that's important is Olamba. Fast forward. In the book, Doresh Tov, by Rabbi Ephraim Kachlon, my rabbi, is three part book three books he has many many good stories and one of the stories you have in English no it's only in Hebrew Bezal Hashem will do English one day um, one of the stories is about Rabbi Galinsky Rabbi Galinsky Zecher Tzadik Livacha died not just a few years ago was one of the top Kiruv rabbis in the world. And he had a such a Avat Israel, such love of Am Israel that it was hard to compete with something like this. There are so many amazing stories of how he did Kiruv in the most unusual places. Things that in our generation we can't do. I'll give you an example. There are stories of how he used to go to a nightclub knowing that somebody would tell him there's a bunch of Jews in this nightclub. Bunch of Israelis in this nightclub doing a Shemachem, who knows what. He would go with his black and white old man, will go to the nightclub, take everyone out, get them told to Jua. All of them go to the Kolel. Today, the rabbi goes into the nightclub, he doesn't come out. 
Who come out of the nightclub today? Shema Achem, there's Sodom and Gomorrah, and you go in there, you start promoting the club at the end of the night. But Rabbi Galinsky was Kodesh Kodeshim. So Rabbi Galinsky says, I'm from the yeshiva of Novardok. Same rabbi that we talked to. We start with Rabbi Yisrael from Salant, Saba Novardok. says, I'm from his yeshiva. We knew that we had to, in order for us to get Torah, to become part of our life, we knew from our teacher, we must do Mesirut Nefesh. We must self-sacrifice to get to a point of mamash getting glued to Hashem. So one day as a young student, I thought to myself, you know, I need to work on my Yirat Shemaim. I need to work on my fear of the Almighty. I learned Torah all day, I learned Gemara, I learned Musar, I learned this, I learned that, but I need to make sure that I have the right amount of fear. And Gemara says, Masechet Brachot, if someone has Yetzara, say Kriyat Shema. Someone has Yetzara to make a sin, say Shema Yisrael. Remind yourself there's a God. If that's not enough, learn Torah. Remind yourself what the Torah says. If that's not enough, remind yourself of the day you're going to die. Why? Because you're going to have to pay the bill. So I said, okay, Robert Gilinski is saying, let me go prepare myself for the day I'm going to die. What's going to look like? So I decided I'm going to go to the Bet Kvarot. I'm going to go to the cemetery at night. Now that's already scary. Me, I'm already scared telling the story, thinking about the cemetery at night. <laughs> So he goes to the cemetery at night. And in a Jewish in a Jewish cemetery there's also a mikveh where they wash the dead bodies. She says, I'm gonna go to the cemetery at night and dip in the mikveh where they wash the dead bodies. So Rav Galinsky, young man. Middle of the night, he's telling the story, he says, just the wind, the wind, the whistling of the wind was terrifying. The whistling of the wind was terrifying being in a cemetery in the middle of the night, it's so dark. Then I see this mikveh and everything is dark and scary. I said, okay, I'm going to take off my clothes really quickly, I'm going to dip and come out. Before I get a heart attack, I'm going to do it really quickly. And this is going to be a memory I'll never forget. Now I'm going to have Yerat Shemaim finally. He takes off his clothes really quickly. He goes into the mikveh. And as soon as he goes into the mikveh, he feels like he's stepping on a body. He says, from the fear that I had, I passed out. But then I passed out. I fell into the water and the water you know, splashed in my face and woke me up. And I got so scared, I started coming out, and the body came out with me. And then I see, it's one of the guys from the yeshiva. <laughs> and we're looking at each other, both of us scared to death. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, you know, Yerat Shemaim is not the only thing I have to work on. I also have to work on my gava, my pride. Why my pride? Why did I think that I'm the only one that will have this brilliant idea of going to the cemetery and dipping in a mikveh? 
Somebody else is also brilliant in the yeshiva, not only me. Us, we, we think we're already tzaddikim just thinking about it. He went and did it and he's thinking about it. I have to work on another midah, another character trait. That's Rav Galinsky. But you see from this story of how Rabbi Yisrael from Salan started his whole organization to Mesirut Nefesh. Then he goes to the Sabamino Vardo, goes to Rav Galinsky. You see the byproduct, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. And this is what Am Yisrael needs to understand, that if you want to have this share of the world to come that everybody keeps talking about, you have to start getting used to Mesirut Nefesh. You have to start getting used to self-sacrifice. You can't just live a comfortable life, enjoy this world on a regular basis, and think that your Allah Abai is going to look pretty. It's not realistic. You didn't come to enjoy this world. I'm not saying you came here to be miserable. I'm not saying you're supposed to suffer in some corner as a homeless person. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that you are supposed to get used to making yourself uncomfortable. For the sake of Hashem. So if it's easy for you to learn 15 minutes a day, then that means it's not enough. You have to start learning a half hour. If it's easy for you to learn a half hour, then it's time for you to learn an hour. If it's easy for you to listen to my lectures online or here, great. You have to listen to more lectures, not just once a week. If you're listening to lectures all week, all day there's lectures, 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 lectures. It's easy for you. You listen to it on the way to work. You listen to it on the way home. That's your Torah. It's easy for you to listen to lectures. It's time to open a book, my friend. You can't just listen to lectures your whole life. Yes, we make it easy for you, Baruch Hashem. Rabbis that work hard to you know, arrange these lectures, make it easy for people to learn. It's good, it's important. You should continue to listen to lectures, but there's levels of Torah. Lectures is one level, but learning yourself from Gemara, from the books themselves, it's, it's a higher level, of course. It's more difficult. You're going to have to do the, the, uh, the, the hard work of figuring out what it says. If it's easy for you to learn from Ma'amloes, let's say, easy for you to learn from some book of, of, uh, that one of the tzaddikim wrote, great, time to learn Gemara. If it's easy for you to learn Gemara, Ashrecha v'ashrecha kecha. Time to learn Gemara with Tosfot. And it keeps going and going and going and going. But now, the ultimate purpose of all of it, all of this learning, is not for you guys to turn into encyclopedias and start teaching me. It's for you to apply all of it. Start applying everything you learn. When you see in Masechet Brachot, which is usually the first Gemara that people read, you see Masechet Brachot, it says, if a man has a woman as a customer, and he has to give her change, has to give her change. And he's taking his time giving her the change. One, two, three, four, five, six... He's taking a time taking, giving a change. So the Gemara says, there's no way for him not to go to Gehenom for that. 
Why is he going to get on his skin? He just gave a change. Because he's only taking his time, according to the Gemara, to look her out. Just like you said, to look at our hands, not to look at our body. To look at our hands. So now, if a person's going to go to Geinom Barminan for looking at a woman's hand that's not his wife, what do you think he's going to get for looking at her body? What do you think he's going to get for looking to see how the skirt fits her? Or the shirt is cut off and how she's not modest or modest or this or that. What do you think he's going to get for that? He's going to get ganeded for that? What does it say in the Torah that says he gets ganeded for that? It doesn't say that. It says the opposite. So, learning all of this Torah, Shurim, Gemara, all of these things that we just talked about, you have to apply it. You have to make sure that these eyes that you have, these eyes are the best camera in the world. Why? Because it never forgets. You don't need a memory stick. It never forgets. Everything that you ever see is always going to be there. You look at a woman once, you're always going to remember what she looks like. And you're always going to remember how you saw her. So if you choose to use your eyes to look at immodesty, you're never going to forget it. If chas v'shalom, you choose to exercise that immodesty, to go take action with a woman that you're not allowed to be with, just know, just know that when 120 comes and you go to judgment day, she's going to be with you at the trial. And according to the Gemara, she's going to be like a caliph, tied to you at all times and never leave you. So even though you're going to have your wife, Baruch Hashem, and kids, kosher family, everybody did tshuva, you're going to have this beast from your 20s still chasing you. Hey, Shmuley, remember me? Embarrassed next to your tzaddikah wife and kids. Why? Because... You took action on something Gemara says don't do. So the point of learning all this stuff is to learn how to apply it. You start learning apply it, you start learning how to apply it, you start actually becoming a better quality person. So now, that we understand that in order for any of these Mishnayot that we're going to learn, in Pirkei Avot, we understand that Olam is not a free ticket. Just because your mom is Jewish does not mean anything. It just means you have a ticket. It doesn't mean that you your ticket's going to work. You could show up at the door and say, okay, yeah, a very nice ticket, beautiful ticket, but it says on the back of the ticket, no shoes, no shirt, no service. You know how they say in the next to, uh, in the 7-Elevens, they always have a sign on the door, no shoes, no, no shirt, no service? Because mm-hmm. guys from the beach come there with no shirt, no, no uh, thing, and they, they want to buy stuff in a shirt and a... Balabai, the owner of the place, says, listen, I don't want my, the rest of my customers seeing you naked. So if you're going to go buy uh, something from my store, put a shirt on, put a shoes on, and you'll get service. But if you show up and you don't exercise these rules, then you're not going to get any service. Same thing with Ticket Olamba. Ticket Olamba says, okay, you, ha- you have to, you have a ticket. But make sure, as the Rambam says... You don't fall under the definition of someone who cuts himself out of Am Yisrael. For all the details, for the third time, Masechet Sanhedrin, page 90 to 98, and Rosh Hashanah, page 17. So we know that there is, it's not going to be easy to get to Olam but it's possible. That's why they're starting the whole book 
the whole Mishnah with this. To show you that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're Nisan or Moshe Rabbeinu. Everyone has the ability to get to Allah which requires some work. So then we go into the first Mishnah, and it says this, Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai, Umesara le Yoshua, Vyoshua le Skenim, Uskenim le Nevim, Unevim, Mesua, Lanchek Neset Akdola, Em Amrush Loshad Varim, Evumetunim Badin, Vemidu Talmidim Arbe, Vasu Siagla Torah. Translation Moses received the Torah. From Sinai. Obviously, they're they're meaning that he got it from God, who revealed himself to him at Mount Sinai, and he transmitted this Torah to Joshua, Yeshua ben Nun, and Joshua to the elders, the Skinim, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets transmitted it to the men of the great assembly, on Sheikh Nesedagdola, and they said three things. Be deliberate in judgment, develop many disciples, and make a protective fence for the Torah. And here we're going to explain, Bezat Hashem, each one of the parts. Now that we have the introduction completed, I'll take the uh, thing and set it. So, first and foremost, who do I care that Moses got this? And then he gave it to Joshua, and then gave it to the elders, and the prophets, and the Sheikh Nisha. What do I care about this history lesson? I thought this is a Musar book. What do I care where you get it from? Well, just tell me there's a Torah. Here, be good, be bad. Don't be a thief. Don't be angry. Don't be a womanizer. Why are you telling me where he got it from? What do I care where I got it from? So Don't I have already the five books of Moses to tell me that? Well, no, it was not modified. you're in the right direction. No, Maud. Make a chain to each individual group. So we can track it to the source. So all the way back to the source and see where it went from. All the way back. So here he's telling us first and foremost... You have to understand that as the Gemara Masechet Brachot says on page 5 Rabbi Levi Bar Chama said in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish Mai Dichtiv What is it the meaning of what's written? Ve'etna lach et luchot ha'evim ve'atorah ve'amitzvah asher katav li'orotam I shall give you, this is, uh, they're getting this from uh, Exodus 24.12. I shall give you the tablets of stone, the Torah, and the commandments which I've written to teach them. In the Torah it says, in Exodus, if you remember, we learned last year, Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm going to give you these three things. The Torah, the, uh, the tablets, two stone tablets, the Torah, the commandments which I have written to teach them. It's a very, it seems like there's superfluous words here. There's meaning that there's extra words. 
So I'm going to give you the tablets of stone. It's the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. We got that. That's what the Gemara says. What is the tablets? Tablets is Elu Aseret Adibrot. Ten Commandments. We got that. The Torah. What's the Torah? That's the Rain Torah. Five books of Moses. We got that. In Mount Sinai, we got up to Parashat Yitro. And then over the next 40 years, Moshe wrote the rest of the Torah. Fine, we got the second part. The commandments. What's the commandments? That's the oral Torah, the Mishnah. Mishnah. Pekavot. Pekavot, part of the Mishnah. But why does it say that I have written to teach them? That I have written is Nevi'im Uktuvim, the prophets and the writings, the rest of the Torah, the other 19 books. Also he gave him. And to teach them, why is it to teach them? Of course you give him a Torah to teach them. Why is it to teach them? To teach them is the Gemara. It's the breakdown of how we got to these Mishnayot. Meaning that everything that we have today, Moses already had in Mount Sinai. This is to teach us a few things. The Mishnah starts with Moshe Kibel Torah Sinai to make sure that we understand that we have a lineage. We have a history. Amisad did not start in 1948 when modern Israel started. Amisad did not start when we got a, uh, the UN to accept us as a people. Amisrael already has generations and generations of over 3,300 years of history. And that history is based on one thing, Torah. Meaning, if you have a person that calls themselves Jewish, then by definition, they're connecting themselves to their history. They're connecting themselves to their lineage. You cannot be Jewish without connecting yourself to your lineage. Why? Because Judaism is a religion, which is dependent on your forefathers. It's dependent on something that started 3,300 years ago. It's not dependent on Eretz Israel. It's not dependent on, uh, you know, on Israel, the country. It's not dependent on politics. It's not dependent on, on Netanyahu. It's not dependent on Obama. It's not dependent on missiles. It's not dependent on war. It's not dependent on anything, on Zionism. It's not dependent on any of that. The only thing it's dependent on is on the Torah. The Torah that started 3,300 years ago that we got then. That's what it's dependent on. Meaning, if you want to call yourself Jewish, you must be connected to this Torah. The fact that your mom is Jewish shows that you have an easier way in. You have a ticket. But if you choose... To disconnect yourself, then you could be like this famous story that happened not too many years ago in an Israeli prison. There was a uh, very famous Palestinian terrorist in the Israeli prison who tells a story. He says, You know, I was in prison for some time and I was thinking to myself, maybe this whole plan we have of getting the Jews to go away and give us the country. Maybe it's just not going to work. Palestinians are just not winning. They're not winning. The Jews keep growing, building, 
And we keep losing. What do we get? A few rocks. We kill a few people. So I thought maybe this plan is not going to work. But then one day I'm in prison, and I see one of the. Uh, I see that the um, the guard is eating pita. Eating pita. And I knew it was Pesach. So I called this guard and I said, "Hey, are you Jewish?" And the guard took me, you know, was surprised that I'm even talking to him. He says, yeah, yeah, I'm Jewish. Because don't you know it's Pesach? Your people don't eat bread on Pesach. And this guard tells me, no, no, that's not for me. I'm not connected to those things. That's a problem my grandparents have. They did it. For me, it doesn't speak to me. So this Arab terrorist says, I couldn't sleep all night. I thought about it and I thought about it and the next morning I called all of the terrorists that were in the cell, all of the Arabs. I told them that's it. From now on, we're no longer accepting any negotiations with the Israelis. We no longer just want strips of land that they could burn and ruin or we no longer want strips of land for us to just start something. From now on, we want the whole pie. We want the entire country. So people ask me, why? It was because those people, they don't connect to their history. And if you don't connect to your history, you don't connect to your lineage, you're a beatable nation. If you don't connect to who you are, to your past, then you have no future. Because we, the Arabs, the Palestinians, we have a past. We connect to Muhammad and this one and that one. We connect to our past. We're going to win the war. If they don't connect to their past, we can beat them. And he was released from prison a few years later. And he told the story and the story became very, very famous and a very big embarrassment for Israel. Let's go. And it's mamasha shame that the story continues now. If you look at the negotiations of what's happened with the Israeli government and the Palestinians, they've never been able to come to the table and negotiate anything reasonable because the mentality changed that day. They no longer want peace. They don't want a piece of land somewhere. They want the whole thing. That's the reality. Why? Because they say, listen, we don't connect to our past. We don't want any connection to Moshe Rabbeinu. So if you don't want any connection to Moshe Rabbeinu, what gives you the right to keep this land? And they're right. The only reason why we have rights to this land called Israel is because Hashem gave it to us. Hashem gave us this land. He gave it to Moshe Rabbeinu, he gave it to Am Yisrael, he gave it to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Called it Israel, your land. Now if you say, I don't want to connect to this Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, I don't want to listen to what Moshe Rabbeinu says, I don't connect to them, I don't care about them, then you have no right living there. That's the reality. 
If you say you have a right to live there, that means that you're connecting to the history. Okay, but you can't just be selective with what you connect to. You can't say, you know, I, collect, I connect to Moshe Rabbeinu, but I don't want to listen to anything else he says. I connect to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, but uh, I only heard their names. I don't really know what they want. I heard this thing called the Torah, but I'll read a Harry Potter book instead. You can't. It's one or the other. And this is, this is actually something that's very, very important to start the Mishnah with, to explain that first and foremost, understand that you ha- in order for us to have a future, we must connect to our past. We must know where it all started. Moshe kibel Torah misinai. Second thing is we learned before, uh, just a few minutes ago, well, I told you why they say Moshe kibel Torah misinai, to show you that in order for Moshe to, to receive the Torah, he had to work on his own midot, to become the humblest man that ever lived. And we see that from this teaching by saying it's not Moshe Rabbeinu kibel Torah from God. He didn't get the Torah from God. It says kibel Torah misinai, meaning because Sinai was the humblest of all the mountains. And Hashem show, showed even more humility by not even including His name in here. So if Hashem is humble, what excuse do you have to be arrogant about anything? This is why it says someone that is arrogant, Hashem hates him. So first and foremost, it's telling us here, know where you got the Torah. Then it says, Mesara le Yoshua. He, he uh, transmitted it to Joshua. It doesn't say that he gave it to Joshua. It says he transmitted it to Joshua, meaning that he taught him the Torah. He taught him everything. Now why, did he, why, why was Joshua picked and not Pinchas, which was very zealous, or many of the other people that were there? Why was it just, uh, why was it Joshua? Because after Moshe Rabbeinu, Joshua was the humblest man that ever lived. Moshe had sons. He had Eliezer, he had Gershon, there was also other tzaddikim, Pinchas, the grandson of Aaron, a Kohen, who has a whole parasha named after him, Parashat Pinchas. There was Bezalel that got Ruach HaKodesh from Hashem to build the Holy Ark. A bunch of tzaddikim. This is Dora Dea. This is the generation of knowledge. And Joshua wasn't exactly known as a big Talmud Chacham. He wasn't known as like the biggest Talmud Chacham of the nation. There's plenty of other people that knew more than him. So why was Joshua selected? He said, good midot. Hashem told Moshe, I picked... Joshua to be the next leader because he's the one that waited for you at all times right outside your camp waiting in what way he can help you he's the one that fixed the Bitkneset and cleaned it up after everybody left never asking for any uh, handouts 
Never tell anybody, hey, by the way, I'm the guy that cleaned the Bekneset. Say thank you. What do you think? It cleans itself? Or put a sign on the wall. Hey, Joshua's the one that's cleaning. Should have an award. Employee of the month. Like they have in uh, Publix. They have in Publix in the counter. They have every picture of every, every month. They have employee of the month. This person was employee of the month. I don't know what you do to get the employee of the month, but if you have any credits of being employee of the month in Shemaim, all of it is going away by putting your picture on the wall. He did Mesirut Nefesh without asking for a thank you. For the sake of Hashem. He did it quietly. So then, Joshua gave it to the, to the Skenim, the elders. Now, Skenim, not to be misunderstood with old people. It's not old people. Could be some people that uh, were uh, 15 years old, 20 years old. Skenim means people that were very, very wise with Torah. Knew an enormous amount of Torah. And this is Skenim. After he taught him that, he gave it to the Nevi'im, to the prophets. The Skenim, so you see, so you would think, naturally you would think that the prophets would come before the Skenim, before the elders. But the Skenim actually had a higher level of Torah and Kedushah than the Nevi'im. So they were prophets. They were higher than prophets. They were higher than prophets to such an extent that they didn't need the teachings like the prophets did. Mm-hmm. They already, when they would learn, for example, when the Skinim learned Torah, they didn't need all the pieces like we need, for example. So, for example, right now, if I want to learn, if I learn uh, Chumash, I take Chumash, I open the book, Parashat Bereshit, Bereshit Barai Elokim, Tashamayim V'Taaretz. So, from that verse, there's an endless amount of knowledge. Enormous amount of knowledge you can learn from the learn. Why did Hashem start the whole Chumash with the letter Bet instead of Aleph? Also, Rambam says that Bereshit also means Bechokhmah, with, with intellect. Hashem built the world with wisdom. And then you uh, see that there's a lot of secrets within the letters if you study them. You can study the first verse of the Torah for the rest of your life and still find new secrets. No joke. As I told you guys several times, there's a video in Hebrew, a 17-minute video in Hebrew, that talks about different secrets that are in the first verse of the Torah. It's unbelievable. Mathematical secrets, uh, scientific secrets, all types of things. Just in the first verse of the Torah, let alone the uh, entire Torah. But anyway, you can learn the, you, we learn the halachot, the laws of the Torah, some of them are plain and simple. Hashem says, don't eat taref, don't eat this, don't do this, don't do this. But some of the alachot that we have is through the understanding of the words. Understanding of why Hashem used this word instead of that word. Or understanding why it says, and this, instead of, but this, or, or this. There's a lot of things. Like, for example, it says, do not... Um, 
cook a uh, deer in his, in his mother's uh, milk. But it says it three times, meaning don't eat milk and meat three times. Now we know that the Torah doesn't have anything extra. So to have a whole verse three times, the same exact verse in the Torah three times, obviously there's a reason for it. So what's the reason? First time it says don't eat meat and milk, it's telling you about the violation of eating meat and milk. You're not allowed to eat meat and milk. Fine. Second time it says no meat and milk, it's referring to you're not allowed to cook it even. Not cook meat and milk. So you can't work at McDonald's and make cheeseburgers for Goyim or for Jews or for anybody. Cannot work. Cannot make meat and milk in any way. Can't have a non-kosher restaurant like some people do. They think they're Jewish. And you know some of them are even calling themselves religious. But they have a non-kosher restaurant on the side because they think that all of their customers are Goyim. So it's okay. It's not okay. Not allowed to have a non-kosher restaurant. So that's violation number two. Number three, you're not allowed to benefit out of it. Meaning, if by accident you're making yourself a burger, and by accident a piece of cheese, not intentional, accident, a piece of cheese fell on the burger. Obviously, you know, can't eat it. Now you cooked it, but it was an accident. The third violation, you're not allowed to benefit out of it. Meaning, you can't take that cheeseburger and give it to your dog. Can't do it. You have to throw it in the garbage. You must throw it in the garbage. Why? Because if you give it to your dog, you would be benefiting out of it. How? By the fact that since the dog is going to eat this burger, he's going to have to eat less dog food, which means you're financially benefiting. You're saving money on dog food. Not allowed to save money on dog food for that. You have to throw it out. You're benefiting out of it. Get it? What do you mean, how are you benefiting out of it? The homeless person is going to view you as someone that's a Baal Chesed. I just put it there and walk away. You're, you're, you're insisting on making an Avera. I must. Not allowed. Have to throw it in the garbage. Must destroy it from the world. He's, he, he's not a Jew. How do you know he's not Jewish? Well, I'm just saying. How do you know? You know. How do you know? Just throw it out. You got cheese on it? Throw you it know it. he's in the problem. If he was in Muhammad, he's not going to eat your burger anyway. Um, but anyway, the uh, the key is if you if if you ever have a situation like that, meat and milk, it's to such an extent that Hashem says you're not even allowed to benefit out of it in any way, shape, or form. You can't be viewed as someone that's uh, doing someone a favor by doing it. You can't benefit out of it financially. That's why you can't own a non-kosher restaurant. Because non-coast restaurants obviously use meat and milk on a regular basis. So, whether it's making cheeseburgers, which is obvious, or it's something simple like using butter. You know, in all of their pans and so on, they use butter in a lot of cooking. Uh, or milk in a lot of their cooking. So, it's a, uh, it becomes a very, very big problem. And not allowed. So, this we learn this law from the Torah by understanding the words, understanding why that Hashem is not putting anything extra, so we see that Hashem put it three times. Therefore, because He put it three times, we know that there's three different laws to be learned from the same verse. Usually, you can only learn one thing from the verse, or one word, but because they use one word for one, uh, one mitzvah, but here you see that the same thing is mentioned three times, 
Therefore, there's three different lessons. Now, why do we get here? The us, when we want to learn, we have to look a different place. We have to look at the Gemara, the Mishnah, the Shuchan Aruch. We have to look at the words this way, that way. The Skinim, the elders, didn't need all these parts. When they looked at the Torah, when they opened the Chumash, and they just read the simple written Torah. Written Torah. Already from reading just a basic verse of written Torah, they understood everything around it. Everything that that verse had to do with. What is it like? If you have, for example, a... This, let's say, uh, on the screen, they see me holding this. You have a picture of this. Let's say you have a picture of a book. You have a picture of a book. You see a picture online, a book. Okay? Or a picture of a person. You have a 1D. Visual of a book. You have a picture on a screen. That's us. Learning Torah today. The skinim, when they look, want to see the book, they would not only see the book in 3D, but they would see what's inside the book. They had Oraganus, the the, uh, the light that was created before the sun. Before the sun, people always ask, how was their light during the first four days of creation, which we're going to learn this week, Parashat Shavua, Parashat Bereshit. It says there was a first day, second day, third day, but only on the fourth day the sun was created. How did you know? That it was the end of the day if there's no sun. Where's the light? Because Hashem created light which is called all aganus, a secret light, a uh, hidden light. A light that's endless. But He took it away after He created the sun. Because this light w- would allow a person to see from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. If a person, if let's say for example there was a barrel... He would look at the barrel and know what's inside the barrel. Not just the barrel itself. If he would look at the book, he would know what's inside the book. So the skinim, when they looked at the Torah, it was a three-dimensional picture for them. They knew everything that the words had to do with, all of the alachot, all of the things that would ever come out of it. Everything. A complete picture. Different world. Different world than us. Then after that, the Torah came to, was taught to the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im were prophets. Prophets, what are they, why are they called prophets? Because the prophet's job is to rebuke the nation. The prophet's job is to tell people what they're doing wrong. That they have to do tshuva. If you look at the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu is constantly rebuking the people. Stop going against Hashem. How many times are you going to test Hashem? You have all these different uh, curses that he's warning Am Yisrael with. This is what's going to happen if you go against Hashem. If you go with His laws, you have all these benefits. If you don't, you get all these curses. And then you see all the other prophets, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Isaiah. All of these different prophets in the Torah that are constantly rebuking the nation. 
Sometimes we listened to them, but many times we didn't. To such an extent that sometimes we even killed them. The Jewish people killed the prophets. But that was their job. Their job is to rebuke people. The prophets were the Kiruv rabbis of their day. Or the Kiruv rabbis of today are the mini prophets of, of our day. Whichever one is better said. We're the ones that give you the message you don't want to hear. We're the message that uh, you don't want to hear. Yeah, exactly. It depends on the rabbi. So the Nevi'im taught the Torah and then they taught it to Anshek Knesset HaGdullah. The men of the great assembly. This was, the men of the great assembly was 120 Tamidim Chachamim which included the last surviving of the prophets, the end of the prophets, because each transition always had someone that was both. So for example, in the, uh, the, the last of the elders was also a prophet. The last of the prophets was also part of the Ansheik Nesed Agdullah, the uh, men of great assembly. So this 120 elders included the last of the prophets, the greatest Torah scholars of the generation, among them was Ezra, Zerubavel, Mordechai, Mordechai from you know uh, Megillat Esther, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. This was in the um, during the time of Ezra when the Jews returned to Eretz Israel from Babylon which is the beginning of the second temple a little over 2,000 years ago so now what's the question is why are they called the men of the great assembly and Sheikh Neset what's so special about these people Gemara Masechet Yoma page 69b says what was their greatness of course, there was many tzaddikim. There was many people that knew a lot of Torah. What made these 120 great? No? Leaders. Huh? Leaders. Okay, leaders, no. They knew more than others. Well, a lot of people knew. It has to be something else, more than knowledge. Okay. No. It has. They had something that almost everyone today struggles with. No. They have something that, that almost everybody struggles with. The only reason somebody works overtime is why. They don't have emunah. They don't have emunah. Anybody works overtime has no emunah. Anybody that overworks has has problems with emunah. Doesn't make them a bad person or anything, but it means that they're trying to help Hashem when it's not necessary. Hashem already decided in Rosh Hashanah how much money you're going to make this year, whether you work or you don't work, whether you work 12 hours a day or 20 hours a day. Your Panasai is already written in Shemaim. I know it doesn't make sense logically, rationally, or in any way in between, but it's not supposed to. It's a Shem. 
you let him run the world, and you do your job. Now, when someone has emunah, they know that they have to do whatever ishtadlut, whatever effort they exert to fulfill their purpose in the world, to do whatever they need. And if part of that is living their life and, and, and actually uh, making money, fine. But it has a limit. There's a certain limit, a certain threshold that you have to stop. Meaning that you can't get to a point where your whole life is just work. Can't you get to a point where your whole life is just based about money? When are you going to learn Torah? When are you going to actually do your, fulfill your real purpose? And you can never say, listen, I'll uh, learn later. After I have a lot of money. There's a Mishnah just for you saying that if you uh, uh, delay, saying that you're going to make money now and delay your learning to later on, you're never going to arrive at that day. So, the Anshek Nesut showed their Emunah by saying that despite the fact that this was a very, very difficult time. It's a time of exile for Am Yisrael. And it was impossible for so many people, for so many Jews, to see Hashem's greatness during this difficult time. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of hardship. They saw Hashem's, couldn't stop praising Hashem during this time. They said that the fact that Hashem is not acting during this difficult time is actually another example of His greatness. Meaning that they were able to see Hashem when everybody else was looking elsewhere. When everyone else, you know, was saying, where's God, where's God? Like people say, where's God during the Holocaust? Where's God uh, when, uh, you know, this uh, person died? Where is God when this... They were saying the fact that Hashem is not answering here is actually that's that shows that he is running the show. They were able to exercise emunah in the highest level. Emunah, by definition, is not believing in God when you have ten million dollars in the bank. Having emunah is believing in God and believing that God's running the show and believing that God has the best interest for you when all you see is dark. When you have no idea how you're going to find a zivug, when you have no idea how you're going to pay the bills this month, when you have no idea how you're going to survive this disease, chas v'shalom, we have no idea how certain things are going to work, but you still know it's going to be okay because God's going to take care of it, that's emunah. But if you have $10 million in the bank and you say, no, no, I believe, I love God, I love God. Okay, you love God. You love the $10 million in the bank, not God. If I remove the $10 million, you still believe in God? You still love Him? Just as much? Sometimes you say, where's God? Not uh, So, that's, emunah is to understand that Hashem is running the world and has your best interest in mind when you can't see anything but darkness. And that's what Anshayk Nesedakadullah were able to do. They were able to see Hashem and His greatness through the most difficult time in Jewish history. So here we see the lineage 
of Mesirut Nefesh from generation to generation, from Moshe Rabbeinu working on his Midot, becoming the humblest man that ever lived, giving it to somebody that also was willing and able to fulfill his purpose in the world, one of the greatest prophets that ever lived, uh, Joshua. And then he gave it to the elders who saw the Torah in a 3D, three-dimensional Torah, people that were obviously very, very special, the greatest of the nation, and then give it to the most important tafkid, most important mission in any generation is to help people do tshuva. So the Nevi'im were given the Torah after that, and then the Nevi'im were given to the people that were the Baal Emunah, the people that were that had the Emunah. And these people all decided there's three things. Three things that you need to do. And if you do them, then the first thing we talked about in regards to Allah you'll get it. Evu metunim badin, be deliberate in judgment. Develop many disciples and make a protective fence for the Torah. So here they're telling you three different things. We'll explain these three different things and finish. So first and foremost, these three things is not only for the next uh, for the Allah Abba, but also this is they're telling you this at the end of our history lesson because they're telling you that in order for this history lesson to continue each and every single generation has to continue the same thing the same Mesirut Nefesh, the same self-sacrifice Moshe Rabbeinu, Joshua the elders, all the prophets the Anshek everybody that did all the way to you in order for that to continue for more generations you have to do these three things but if you stop doing these three things, there will not be any continuity. You're not going to be able to exercise this Torah anymore. There's going to be a uh, disconnect. These are the three minimum requirements of what you need to do. So be deliberate with judgment. So first and foremost, we know that the uh, the judgment that we have, this, you know, the book of judgment or, or the laws that we have are broken down in the Gemara, in the Gemara, or in the Mishnah, Mishnah, the Gemara, Gemara. Also, the uh, the Rambam took it and took the laws out of it. And then from there we have the uh, Shulchan Aruch. Um, and here we have a book of laws that gives us a breakdown of all of the laws. But one of the most important part of this entire book, one of the most important parts of the whole exercise of judging in general, is to judge each case as if it's the only case. Meaning, whether it's $100 or $100 million, you have to judge it the same way. You can't say, ah, it's only $100. Just like, it's just, just give guilty, not guilty, just get out of here already. $100 million, let me investigate, let me research come back tomorrow I need to look into some more facts no, you have to look at every case as if it's the only case in the world 
And you can't say, listen, I already had five of these cases, so this one is definitely guilty also. I already had five like this. I already had five people that went to the store and had a problem with the owner. I already had five people that had a problem with this company. So he's probably number six. He's probably guilty also. Can't do that. You have to give him the benefit of the doubt that there is something different in his case than all the other five cases you saw. Even if you had 5,000 cases like that. 5,001, different case. If it's $100 or $100 million, same thing. You have to look at it as if it's the only case in the world. So being deliberate with judgment is something that's very, very important uh, in Jewish law. That unfortunately, in the secular law, it's almost impossible to find. It's almost impossible to find because the secular law with these uh, regular judges, the only thing they use is stereotype of what somebody is supposed to be based on their looks or their background. Um, and uh, past cases that were very similar. You look at all cases, for example, they tell you, yes, but uh, Martin versus uh, Luther, 1962, said da 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 Or uh, Williams versus Warren of this year now. You're, okay, but this is a different case. It has nothing to do with it. In that case, he lived in Alabama, and Alabama has this law. You live in New York, and you have this law. In that case, he, uh, you know, had six people there. In this case, you have three. And there's a lot of different facts. You can't connect the two. There's a law, and that's it. So in the secular world, they go against this on a regular basis. The second thing is, secular law is based on people's feelings. People's feelings. So I'll give you an example. There was, uh, in 2009, there was a uh, group of scientists in a, uh, one of the uh, cities in Italy, I think it's called Laquia uh, La- or Coya. that is, uh, it's a city that's known to have earthquakes. Like it's a very dangerous area in the world. Everyone knows it has earthquakes on a regular basis. 300 years ago in 1703, they had such a huge earthquake, a lot of people died. Da, 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 da. So everyone has always been scared about earthquakes there. There's regular earthquakes, small earthquakes, but everyone's always scared of having that big earthquake they had 300 years ago. So in 2009, Scientists came out, you know, there was some small earthquakes. And scientists came out, nah, don't worry about it, just small earthquakes. It's actually, one of them actually said, no, this is actually a sign that the big earthquake is not going to come because the earth is releasing energy through the smaller earthquake, so it shows that the big earthquake is not going to come. Complete nonsense, by the way. One earthquake has nothing to do with the other earthquake. There's also no way of predicting an earthquake, by the way. But the scientists can't really tell you this stuff. Why? Because if you tell them, listen, by the way, everything that you're paying us for is a waste of money because we can't predict earthquakes anyway. So the $50 million grants we get from the college, you know, we're not going to get it if I tell you the truth that there's no way for me to predict an earthquake. 
So these scientists came out and said, don't worry about it. The fact that there's small earthquakes, one of them actually said the fact that there's small earthquakes is even more proof that the big earthquake's not coming. And the rest of the scientists said, nah, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. Six days later, a giant earthquake came out, ton of uh, damage, over uh, almost 300 people died, 15,000 became homeless. 2009? 2009. 15,000 people in a small place, not like New York City. Small place, 15,000 people being homeless is huge. A lot of death, disaster. Now, in reality, yes, the scientists are idiots. They're idiots. For Listen, tell people there's no earthquake, there's yes earthquakes. No questions asked. But is it their fault that the earthquake happened? Are they responsible for the 300 people that died? No. The earthquake killed them, not the scientists. What if they didn't say? No, what do you mean? Even if they did say, listen, earthquake's going to happen. Then what? People How? Leave the place. You, if, you should leave the place already before. It's already known as an area that has earthquakes every day. Well, the people you should live there. That's the point. Meaning that in reality... If you remove emotions out of it, whether the scientists said, listen, earthquake can happen, will happen, is going to happen, is irrelevant. Because everything they're saying is a guess anyway. Everyone knows it. It's a guess. Yes and no is the same chance. It's 50-50. If they said yes, and it would have caused you to leave, then no should also cause you to leave because you already live in a place that's sensitive to, to earthquakes anyway. So why do you live there anyway? If you're scared of earthquakes, why do you live there? Why do you need them to say yes to something that you already know is yes before you said the yes? Meaning that what ended up happening is because the earthquake ended up happening, one of the journalists of that uh, city lost two sons, lost two kids, miskin. So he started making a whole big deal out of it, all the way to the point that all of seven scientists were criminally charged to go for, for murder, for manslaughter. They went to trial, and initially they were found guilty. All seven of them were found guilty. All seven of them were found guilty for manslaughter. All seven of them were supposed to go to jail for six years. But then they appealed it, and out of the seven, only one went to jail for two years. The rest of them will let, will, will, will let go. Why did he go for two years? Because he said that, uh, you know, the, uh, he's the one that said that the fact that uh, the small earthquakes is proof that the big earthquake is not going to happen. Like he completely created a fact. And he said that that made people not leave even after they saw the earthquake or whatever. Long story short, what I'm trying to tell you here is that the whole trial you see is not based on fact at all. There's zero facts. It has emotions. It has the fact that people got emotionally destroyed because they lost friends and family and, and, and so on, and they based their judgment based on that. That's the secular court for you. It's not just in Italy. It's everywhere. 
if someone has connections that are bigger than the opposing party's connections, they win the trial. If someone is does insider trading that's illegal, but the name is Martha Stewart, they go to jail for one year. Now, if this Martha Stewart did the same insider trading in Japan, she'd be praised and highlighted in the newspapers as the smartest person alive, because it's legal in Japan. Insider trading, by the way, is knowing information about a company that's a public company, that's a stock, before anybody else does, and using that to your advantage. So, for example, I know, let's say, that Apple's going to come out with a new phone. Before everybody else knows. So I know that once they tell the world they're going to buy a new phone, stock's going to go up, most likely. So I buy the stock, and then Apple announces that they get a new phone. The stock goes up, and I make money because of it. Or on the opposite, I know that this company that has a certain drug, a certain medicine, it's not working anymore. Or it never worked. It failed. It was supposed to cure cancer. They found out it's not going to cure anything. It cures bupkis. cures uh, measles or something. cures nothing else. So, it, so now you know that once the public finds out about it, the stock's going to go down. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go bet against the stock. I'm going to short the stock. So if I do this, when I exercise this knowledge before the rest of the public knows, that's called insider trading. And in America, it's illegal. In Japan and many other places around the world, it's not only legal, it's actually recommended. Why? Because you're actually doing the same thing in every other part of business. Example, if let's say, for example, your friend has a, uh, I don't know, his, his, his dad or his grandfather wants to sell a house. And, and before he puts it on the market, your friend comes to you and says, Listen, Sonny, my dad's about to list his house. It's a million dollar house. But he hasn't listed it yet. If you come to him now and tell him, Listen, I want to buy the house, I'll give it to you for 600000 Because he knows you. He'll give it to you for 600000 Also, he doesn't have to deal with the headache of a broker, people looking at the house, this. It's a big headache for him. He just wants to be retired, go to Bahamas. That's a good deal. So, what are you going to do? You're going to go to this house, buy the house, $600,000, save $400,000, right? 100% legal. It's 100% legal. If somebody says, listen, Sonny, my, my friend is selling his business. He's selling his business. Business is worth $150,000, but because he really wants cash. He wants cash. He doesn't want to go through a whole broker and everything else. He wants cash. I'll give it to you for $75,000. You go there, you pay him $75,000, you bought the business, 100% legal. The fact that you say 50% is irrelevant. Ashrecha, Hazakabaul for doing it. That's businessman. That, that shows that you're a savvy. Right? In the stock market, it's illegal. In America. Which is stupid, but that's the law. But even to show that this stupid law they have in this country that is contradicted in every other part. If you go to real estate, you're allowed to do it. If you go to private business, you're allowed to do it. You go to the stock market, you're not allowed to do it. So you already see that there's something wrong with this law. But to even show that even this law in the stock market is only based on who you know. 
if your name is Martha Stewart and you get charged and convicted of insider trading, what happens? You go to jail for one year. One year. But if your name is Raj Rajaratnam, who runs a multi-billion dollar fund, 25 years in jail. 25 years in jail. Same case, same thing. Insider trading. Different contacts. That's what happens, that's the difference between secular law and Torah law. Secular law is subjective. If I know you, if I like you, if I feel like it, if I'm emotionally connected to it, if I benefit out of it, if I don't benefit out of it, what's in it for me? That's secular law. That's flawed human law. Torah law, what's the halacha? Based on what God said, what's the action? That's it. Nothing else. It doesn't matter if I like you or not. It doesn't matter who you know, you don't know, if you're Moshe Rabbeinu, if you're not Moshe Rabbeinu. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. So, first thing they're telling you is you must be deliberate with judgment. You must have a code of law. You must have a beddin that only looks at the halakha and not at all the other nonsense that the secular law looks at. Second, ve'amidu tarmidim arbeh. Developed many disciples. The, uh, there's always a machloket between the academy of Hillel and Shammai. Bet Hillel and Bet Shammai. Bet Shammai is known to be much more stringent. Bet Shammai says, listen, I think we should only teach Torah to people that are wise and humble, already have good midot. You have good quality people, that's the people you invest all your energy in. It's good midot. He's humble. He's uh, already has a brain in his head. He's not like a half a monkey. That's the guy you teach him Torah. Make him into somebody special. Make him into Gdol Adol. Bet Hillel says, no, 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 no. Teach everyone. Teach everyone. Because there's many stories of sinners who once they were brought to Torah became tzaddikim. So just looking at the outside... You don't know if he's chacham, he's not chacham, if he's this, if he's that. It's just the outside. So the uh, the Mishnah is based on the opinion of Bet Hillel. Bet Hillel to teach everyone because you never know really what's a, uh, what's going to happen out of it. And uh, there's actually a story in the Gemara that Rebbe, Rabbi Udanasi, saw that one of the uh, one of the giants of the of the generation. His son is uh, he died, so he came and he looked and he wanted to see if uh, you know he came to visit to, to, to visit the family, and he wanted to see if Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, actually had a um, had a son. And I said, yeah, yeah, he has a son. But uh, his son is not exactly a tzaddik. His son is... There's no woman he's not with. Let's just say that. He's such a handsome fellow that all the women are throwing themselves at him. He's skin. 
He doesn't think he's a miskan, and the secular people don't think he's a miskan, but Rabbi knows he's a miskan. He says, bring him here. It's a Rabbi. Rabbi is Rabbi Udanasi. Kamara says, all the sages gathered together and said, if anybody's going to be a Mashiach in our generation, it's going to be Rabbi. It's the perfect human being. So Rabbi says, bring him to me. He comes with him. He says, okay. You are now officially a rabbi. He gives him smicha. The guy doesn't know anything. The guy is a womanizer. He says, you're officially a rabbi, and you're going to go learn chavruta with Rabbi Shimon ben, ben Isi ben Lekonya. One of the big, uh, big rabbis. One of the big tamidim of a... Uh, of Rebbe. Go learn Chavuta with him. Kid doesn't want to learn nothing. What does he want to learn? Just leave me alone. I want to go back home. So he start learning, start learning, start learning. But this boy, Yossi, doesn't stop complaining that he wants to go back home. So his Chavuta, this also was a big Chacham. Rabbi Shimon says, listen, they, you have to understand, you have to understand, they made you a rabbi. They didn't just make you, they don't just make anybody a rabbi anymore. They make you a rabbi because Rabbi is a secret. What he really wants, what he really, really wants is to make you gdolado. To put the golden gown on top of you. So everyone is going to look at you and say, ah, that's Rebbe. That's the Gdolado. But you tell us you want to go back to your city to what, for, for the women. So this young Yossi stopped asking to leave. And some years passed. And I started... Uh, become a big Talmud Chacham and one day Rebbe comes to the yeshiva and he overhears somebody teaching Torah and he says oh this sounds like my old friend Rabbi Lazar the one that died and a student comes to me and goes no no that's Rabbi Yossi (laughs) the one that you saved that used to be a womanizer point being is that Hillel was right here, is that, Bet Hillel was right here, is that if you teach Torah, the power of Torah can change anyone. But also Bet Shammai was also right. A lot of times you're going to be wasting your time. If the guy doesn't have already some decent midot to work with, you're going to be wasting your time. So you have to, you have to default and try to help everyone you can. Because you, we don't have Ruach HaKodesh, we don't know who's going to be good, who's not good, who has this, who has that. But you have to also know that if you have an option, you have a, uh, one guy you know, to help to help him do tshuva, another guy help him do tshuva. One guy is coming to the shiur, the other guy doesn't come to the shiur. One guy asks questions, the other guy acts like he knows everything. One guy you know, is a, uh, constantly interfering in the shiur, the other one sleeps. 
If somebody's interactive, he's into it, okay, it's good, work with him. You may not have the greatest midot in the world, but work with him. But if the other guy is not even interested, if he's just sleeping the whole time, what are you, what are you, what are you investing your time for? And one thing I also heard from uh, Rav Mizrahi and also from a few other places is that right now we're so close to Mashiach. We're so close to the end. There's no more time to waste with people. You're either in or you're not. You're either going to do tshuva or you're not going to do tshuva. There's no more time to like spend, okay, listen, let me give you the proofs and then more proofs. And then explain to you why we don't eat milk, meat and milk, and then Shabbat, and then this, and then two years of explaining the guy before he starts keeping anything. If the guy doesn't start keeping something right away, you got to move on. You can't spend all day with people in hopes that maybe in six months from now they're going to start keeping something. If the guy doesn't show interest right away, like something, okay, you know what? I'll watch this video. Okay, you know what? I'm not going to go to the game on Sunday. I'll uh, watch a different video. I'll... Some type of interest, some type of commitment to tshuva. If he doesn't show any interest whatsoever, you got to move on. There's no time. There's no time to, to waste six months with a guy in hopes that maybe one day he's going to keep Shabbat. There's no time. And that's just a real. I mean, I see it as Baruch Hashem. Hundreds and hundreds of emails and text messages every day. Every day I deal with. And sometimes I see one, you know, people, I don't know what kind of time they think rabbis have, but um, apparently they think we have all the time in the world. They send you Megillahs. Send you a letter with all of the problems they ever had since kindergarten to ask you one question that shouldn't have taken more than five words. The whole email is three pages, but it should have been five words, the whole thing. So you have this as option A. They're telling you their whole life story. First story is, can I eat meat and milk? Okay, well, okay, meat and milk, fine. Well, it's, why did you tell me where you were in kindergarten 16 years ago? Like, what do I need to know all this stuff for? Some people will give you a Megillah. It's three pages long for one simple question. And you have another email. Same question, but just it's one line. Now, if you have a thousand emails to answer, and you have an option, okay, I can either look at this one email, it's going to take me 15 minutes just to read it, or I can look at 20 of these, short ones. What do you do? You look at the short ones. By default, everybody does this. It's not a bad thing, it's a reality. Because you're limited to time. I have 24 hours a day, but we try to have to work 20 of them, Answer emails, learn, calls, meetings, whatever, lessons, shurim, everything else. You try to work nonstop. Mesirut nefesh doesn't end. But you have to also use your time effectively. I have one email that's three pages long. During that time I read it, I can answer 15 another, other ones that are short. You have to go to the 15. If you eventually get time, you get to the other one. But that's why sometimes people send me emails that, you know, they keep sending the same email like six times. And they're like, how come you don't answer? How come you don't answer? I'm like, yeah, because it's going to take me 20 minutes to read your email, buddy. Send it, send it in short form. Tell me, listen, what's the tachlis? What's the bottom line? What do you want? What can I help you with? What's this? Sometimes it requires a really long email. Sometimes a problem really is a problem. But most of the time it doesn't. I've seen thousands of them. Most of the time, the, all the extra fluff. 
It's like books. You, know, you guys ever noticed that books today, most of the book is completely useless. Like if you take any secular book, doesn't matter what book it is, Harry Potter or uh, whatever, Fiddler on the Roof or whatever book it is. In reality, you can say the entire story of the book in maybe three pages. Really, it's 500 pages or 1,000 pages. You look at any Stephen King book. Mm-hmm. Or, or uh, I don't know, any of the other authors. Read the back print also. Read the back print, you already know the story. Read the back print, the last two pages, you've, you finish the story. In reality, you could tell all of these stories in three pages. But why do they sell, why do they make it a thousand pages or 500 pages? Because you're not going to pay 20 bucks for three pages. You're not going to pay 20 bucks for it. So... The thing is, though, is that when people have real-life problems, fine, you obviously you want help, you want somebody to help you 100%. All the rabbis are there to help you. But you have to help them help you and make your emails considerate and your text messages considerate. You can't send somebody a three-page letter and expect them to answer you the same day. He has other people. If he doesn't, then, you know, God bless him. But I don't know, most people do. So this is one of the main things that, you know, when you learn Musar, when you learn, you know, you, you, you start understanding that you have to start considering other people. Empathize. That's what we talked about last, uh, last week's show. Moving on with a Tamidim uh, Chachamim, obviously, you... Uh, so, when you're learning Torah, you have to teach somebody. You can't just teach yourself. I mean, if you're obviously alone in a desert and you have nobody around you, um, you should probably move. But if you don't move, at least teach yourself. But aside from that, you should definitely use this knowledge that you have uh, to teach others. One of the ways that you can teach others is, uh, if you're not able to speak yourself, is by sponsoring. Sponsoring yeshivas. Sponsoring Tamidim Chachamim. Sponsoring Kiruv. Getting involved with making yourself other students, but not necessarily doing it yourself, but actually using your money to do it. You know, you work, you have bills, you have your life, great, but there has to be something left over. And use that money to buy yourself the next world. If you do it right, you'll have both this world and the next world. I know that it's very, very difficult for people to give tzedakah, number one, because they work so hard for their money, because they think it's their working, and number two, um, because it's just hard to give tzedakah for kiruv. It's, we had a whole shiur about how you have to have a merit to do kiruv. But again, this is part of the mesirut nefesh. If it's easy for you to give a certain amount of tzedakah, that means you're not giving enough. For every time you see a homeless guy, it's easy for you to give a dollar, that means it's... It's not as high of a level of a mitzvah as you can get. If every time you see a certain rabbi, you give him 20 bucks and it's easy for you, great. But, you know, you probably can give more. Tzedakah is supposed to hurt a little bit. If it's easy for you to give a certain amount of money, it's not enough. It's supposed to hurt just a little bit. Not to the point where you're homeless. You know, you can't put yourself in a street because you give tzedakah, you're not allowed. But you can't put yourself in a situation where you think, listen, I'm giving uh, you know, $1,000 and it's great, but really you're, you, you can give 10000 And then the last part is, Vasu Torah, make protective fence for the Torah. This is for the 
poskim. This is for the, uh, the regular Jews. This is for everyone. This applies to everyone. Meaning that a lot of people have a tough time understanding that aside from the 613 laws that we have in the Torah, there are other alachot that were added after. Now we have 613 laws directly from the Torah. We have seven biblical laws, which makes 620. Out of the 620, many of them do not apply because we don't have the Beit HaMikdash. Or because not everyone's a Kohen. Or because not everyone's a woman. Or because not everyone is, you know, a man. And so on. So let's say an average person can probably do or is responsible for, let's say, between 150 and 200 of them. But it's not really 150 or 200 laws. It's 150 to 200, which from them stem many, many, many more. There's other alachot within them. Shabbat is not just one thing. There's a couple of books worth with hundreds of alachot of what you have to do and you can't do and you cannot do on Shabbat. So a lot of people that look into this in the beginning when they're ignorant and they don't really understand, they're like, no, all of these laws are just rabbis wrote them. Not that it's not in the Torah. So first and foremost, understanding that everything we have is from Mount Sinai. Including the stuff that's not written in the Torah. Meaning that Hashem told us, don't violate Shabbat. If you violate Shabbat, you are falling into the description we talked about in the beginning of this year, which is cutting yourselves out of the nation. No longer being considered Jewish. Shem You're in a really, really bad situation. So Hashem said, do not violate Shabbat. So the rabbis said, okay, listen. If he writes on Shabbat, he's violating Shabbat, he cuts himself out of the nation. That's a really big problem. Now we know that some people, once they have a pen in their hand, they can't stop themselves. They have to write. They have to write a chidush. They have to write a story. They have to, they think they're just, they're not writing anything. They're just playing with the pen. So they think they can do it. They don't know enough. They're, you know, burim ba'amaretz. They don't know anything. They're ignorant. So we have to make another law. Law of Mukte. Whereas you're not even allowed to touch a pen on Shabbat. In reality, the Torah says you're allowed to touch a pen. No problem touching a pen. You're not allowed to write. But the rabbis knew that if you already have a pen in your hand, you're much more likely to write. So therefore, we have to make another law where you're not allowed to touch a pen bechlal. At all. It's called Mukte. There's the laws of Mukte. Where is it's putting... Just like it says in Mishnah, make a protective fence for the Torah. Make a fence around Hashem's fence. Where is the source? Go to Leviticus chapter 18 verse 30. Where Hashem says, Ushmartem et mishmarti. You shall safeguard my charge. Safeguard my Torah. My Torah, it's not just for you to keep, but it's also to preserve it. So if you know that as generations pass... They're further and further from the original law. They're further and further from the source. They're weaker and weaker. You have to make certain laws that are applicable to that generation that are going to keep them still in the game. They're going to still keep them as part of Am Yisrael and they're not going to do one of these things where they can't take it back once they're, once they're uh, gone. So make laws that are going to keep everybody inside. Make a fence around my fence. I have a fence, but make sure that you put another fence on top of it just to make sure that if they violate you, yes, it's a problem. 
but at least it doesn't cut them out of the nation. If he touches a pen, he's not going to uh, you know, uh, be cut off from the nation for touching a pen. He'll be cut off from the nation if he writes. But at least once he picks up a pen, and he's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not allowed to touch a pen, I'll throw the pen down. Or remind him that the second action will remind him he's not allowed to touch a pen. Remind him, I'll drop it. So that's the um, putting a fence around the fence. And last but not least, when uh, when it says, all of these things, if you notice, all three things that uh, it says actually in this Mishnah, to uh, be deliberate with judgment, to be uh, to create a lot of students, to uh, put the fence. In the end, it's telling you all of these things that in order for you to do all of them in an effective way, you have to know your crowd. You have to know who you're dealing with. You can't just a uh, be deliberate with judgment without knowing what the case is about. You can't say, you can't judge two people you know, without knowing a little bit of background of where he's from and where he's from. You can't stereotype people. Same thing with in regards to making a lot of students, creating a lot of students. You can't just create, make anyone into a student. If the guy's a kofel, you can't exactly make him into a student right away. First, you have to make him not a kofel. Then maybe he can become a real student. And making a fence around the fence, same concept is, you know, you have to know who your crowd is. If your crowd is a bunch of people that understand Torah, then you know that the fence can be a little lower. It's okay. If your crowd is Tamidim Chachamim, really big people, then you may even have less of a fence. But if it's complete ignorance, then you know you need to put the wall of China. You have to know who you're dealing with. The point is, is that you have to know who you're dealing with with all three of these Mishnayot. You have to be just like Moshe Rabbeinu, you have to be just like Joshua, you have to be humble, you have to be with the people. When you're doing Kiruv, when you're trying to help people do Tshuva, when you're trying to show the beauty of the Torah to the public around you, and it's not necessarily just to someone professional, but someone even if individual, like one of you guys wants to give a CD to somebody. You want to uh, send a link to somebody of a shul. You have to think about things and put yourself in their shoes. If the guy just finished a fight about religion with his wife, it's not the best time to give him a CD. If he's in a good mood, because, I don't know, his team just won, that's a, good te- that's a good time to give him a CD. If he's talking to you about who's going to win politics, it's a fine time to give him a uh, link to watch a video. But if he just lost his job, it may be or may not be to give him, depends what lecture. So when you're doing Kiruv, when you're teaching somebody, when you're, when you're trying to get people back on track to Hashem, you have to make sure that you know who you're dealing with and how to deal with them. You can't just be like a gunslinger and shoot and whatever hits, hits. Absolutely. What is this like? The uh, Mishnah says that out of the, uh, the greatest students 
that uh, Rabban Gamliel had was uh, the greatest one was Rabbi Yonatan ben Uziel. Rabbi Yonatan ben Uziel was a great student to such an extent that any time he would study Torah and a bird would fly over him, the bird would burn. From the fire of the Torah that he would create, the holiness of his Torah, the bird would burn. Going to, you know, become a little korban. In the Gemara Masechet Megillah, it says that one day Rabbi Yonatan ben Uziel wrote the Pirushim, wrote the commentary on parts of the Torah. After he finished, there was a huge earthquake, shook up the entire land. And a bat call came from Shemaim and said, Who disclosed my secrets to men of flesh and blood? spoke to this bat call said, It was me. But you know, I didn't do it for my own honor or for the honor of my father. I did it for your honor. And I want to continue doing it with the other books of the Torah. And the Bat Kol says, you've done enough. Don't do any more. Enough of these secrets. And Chazal says the reason why Hashem didn't want to give any more out is because the rest of what he wanted to uh, um, give commentary on, which was Psalms and so on, has the exact timing of when the Mashiach is going to come. So... Hashem didn't want anyone to know when the Mashiach is going to come. Hmm. But Rabbi Yonatan ben Uziel knew this information. Is my point. That's why the bird burned. Not because he just knew a few Gemarot by heart. Rabbi Yonatan ben Uziel is a Kodesh Kodeshim. Someone that's... What's, what's his name? Yonatan ben Uziel. Yonatan ben Uziel. Something Amazing. We can't even relate to something like this. But who's the rabbi that's known as the one that held, that, that delivered the Masoret of this Mishnayot and is constantly mentioned throughout the Gemara? Rabbi Yochanan. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai is known as the least of the students, the lowest of the students. He knew everything by heart. Something again, he knows more Torah than the entire world we have today combined. But in that generation, out of that class, he was the least. So they say, why is Rabbi Yochanan mentioned as the one that preserved the Masoret and not Yonatan ben Uziel? Yonatan ben Uziel was clearly bigger. Says because Yonatan Uziel was so big, you can't even relate to him. It's a different world. Rabbi Yochanan, you can relate to, and that's the requirement of a teacher. You have to be able to relate to people. If you talk to people at such a high level, people barely know what Shabbat is. They barely know 
what kosher is. You start talking to them about the halachot of this one and that one, and the better mikdash this and the better mikdash that, and all these different complicated pilpulim, they call it. Not only are they not going to do tshuva, they're going to start hating the Torah. Because it's going to seem like it's so far away from their reality that it's like, I'm so far, I can't start at 40 years old. I can't start at 50 years old now learning this stuff. My kid, maybe. He's, you know, he's three years old. I sent him to Yeshiva. Maybe he'll know know this stuff. But the guy's 40, 50 years old and you're telling him some crazy halachot that only a Talmud Chacham knows. It's going to make him do less... Is, is more likely to become more of a kofel. Because it's going to seem like the Torah is such a different world. It's like, I can't do this. He's going to give up before he started. So you can't show your wisdom or your genius to just anyone. And as a matter of fact, if you do, then you're no genius at all. You're an idiot. You're a gaftan. You're prideful. And this is sometimes you find this in books. In books. I remember, I remember, I tell you guys a little secret, but I'm sure everybody else does it or did it at some point. When I was in high school, uh, in junior high school and so on, you'd have to write all these like book reports. And, uh, you know, the, when you don't, you know, one of the main things you want to do when you write something is you want to look smart, look like you know what you're doing. So what is that? I don't know, anybody that I know did this. It's usually when you write something, you know, you have, whatever, two pages, three pages that you write. And there's a bunch of times that you have these uh, words and you want to replace them with something that sounds more sophisticated. So you, pr- you highlight the word, you press the thesaurus, and you find a bigger word that means the same thing, a, sy- a synonym. And you use that word. So instead of saying, let's say, understandable, you put comprehensive. Same thing. But comprehensive sounds like you're a bigger chacham. And then there's other words. And then obviously there's other words. And there's some words that are completely, like unless you're like a genius in the English language or any other language, you have no idea what they mean. But they mean the same thing. So a lot of people, what they do is they write books or letters, or articles, with words that clearly no one uses. No one uses these words. Sometimes they even say it in, 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 in uh, you'll actually see someone that's ignorant, someone that doesn't really know much, but you'll see him using big words. And he doesn't know how to use it. Like he uses it in a completely wrong place. But he, I don't know, like he read, I don't know, he read, he studied the dictionary or something, and he studied like, I don't know, a hundred really big words. Because he wants people to think he's smart. Because if he says, and, but, you know, three-letter words, then he doesn't sound like he's the smartest guy in the world, at least according to him. But he thinks that if he uses 15 letters, uh, words, as part of his day-to-day conversation, he sounds smart. But it couldn't be further from the truth because if you don't know how to use them, you actually sound like an idiot. It's true. But a lot of people do this. And so this is in common language. But in books, it's very, it's, it's, it happens even more often. In books, like in, in regular conversation, 
Here and there it happens. You see people that, you know, they don't, they barely know how to spell, but they're using a 15-letter word. It happens here and there. But in, a, in books, it happens very, very often. Because it's much easier. Because you don't even need to know the word. You just need to have a computer. You have a computer, you wrote your book. You know, your book is very simple English, but you want your book to look like it's chashuv, like it's really important, so you start changing words to words that mean the same. And uh, like I used to do in my book reports as a kid. And, uh, but the problem is that sometimes they go overboard and they use words that no one uses. And you have to like literally read, like the, the book becomes unreadable to an average person. And it's just useless. The key to every book, doesn't matter if it's Torah or it's novels or it's anything, is for it to be readable by everyone. And the way to show that you're intelligent is not by the words you use, but by the number of words and how you use them. Meaning you can deliver the same message with a lot of words or with few words. The fewer the words, the smarter you are. If you need a whole book to express one idea, then you probably don't know that idea that well. If you could express the same idea in five words, you probably know it extremely well. But if you are trying to make everyone think you know the idea, then what you do is you steer their attention in a different direction. You give them really, really big words, so all their attention goes on these big words and trying to figure out what the definition of this word is instead of figuring out what you're actually saying. So, this is, again, one of the things that happens, I think, I've seen it a few times, uh, with um, people that write books that are young. Young people, my age, younger sometimes, a little older sometimes, and they try to write books, they try to write, uh, you know, uh, and uh, Torah books, and they, I don't know, like, there's just sometimes you see a word, Bok Hashem have a good vocabulary, but I know nobody else knows how to read this stuff. Like, why? What's the point of using this crazy word? Like, who uses this word? Like, in 1912 they used it once in a dictionary? Like, who uses this word, Bechlal? Use the regular word. It means this. It means that. But the problem is that people are so concerned with other people's view of them that they forget about the actual purpose of why they're doing what they're doing. So, the last thing that we learned from this Mishnah is you need to know your crowd. You need to know who you're dealing with. And don't forget where you stand. Be humble. Um, ultimately, the goal is to do everything for Hashem. The goal is ultimately to do everything for Am Yisrael, to get Am Yisrael to do tshuva, and not necessarily to get kavod, or to get a, uh, awards, or to get money, or everything else. If you do Hashem's will, Bezot Hashem, Hashem will give you everything you want anyway. Amen. Any questions? Next week's Mishnah, I'll tell you it already, but then obviously we're not going to go over it. But it says, Shimon HaTzadikaya, uh, Shimon the Righteous was one of the remnants of the Great Assembly. He was the, Shimon HaTzadik was, Ayam Yeshrei Knesset Gdola. Hu Aya Omer, Ashlosha Dvarim Aolam Omed, Ala Torah Ve'ala Avodah Ve'agminut Chasadim. He was accustomed to say, the world is based on three things. The Torah, the service of God, 
and upon the acts of loving kindness. That's the second Mishnah, and with other Hashem, we'll go over that. Maybe we'll even go into the third Mishnah um, as well. But uh, a lot of details into few words we'll learn with other Hashem next week. Baruch Adonai Amen v'Amen.